the bit of the brain that's involved in tool using is highly overlapping with the bit of the brain that does speech and language. And syntax is a bit of human language that is imperative to having the complexity that we have in our communication system. And if we are now to kind of step back from that and go, well, what could have set our brains up to do something like that? Tool use is one of the evolutionary theories that that helps the brain prepare for language. And the idea is that if you want to use or make a tool, you've got to put the actions in the correct order to get the right outcome. Evolution from our fingertips to our lips. That's the journey we're taking on this episode of Talking Apes. Hi, I'm your host, Jerry Ellis, and I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Jillian Forrester, or Jilly as she prefers to be called. Jilly is our guide on a quest to better understand how we became the upright, walking, talking, tool-using great apes that we are today, both through the evolution of our species and through the development of our infant selves. Jilly is a professor of evolutionary and developmental psychology at the University of Sussex in England. And while she's well-deserving of that ivory tower title, to best understand and appreciate Jilly's exploratory approach, make a quick visit to the webpage for her Me Human project. There you'll find, with joy and curiosity, she explores who humans are, how we are connected to the natural world through education, research, citizen science, and through her naturally entertaining public engagement style, which sometimes means balloon animals, claymation, and even puzzle boxes. Jilly is on a quest to better understand how we became the great apes we are today, both through the evolution of our species and through the typical and atypical development of infants, gorillas, chimps, orangutans, and our own children. So welcome and thanks for listening to this episode of Talking Apes, the podcast that gets to the heart of what's happening with and to apes like us. Talking Apes is made possible by generous support from listeners like you and our growing number of Patreon members. Find out how you can support Talking Apes podcast by visiting talkingapes.org. That's talkingapes, one word, dot O-R-G. And now with equal joy and curiosity, I'd like to welcome Jilly Forrester. Hi, Jillian. and welcome to Talking Apes. Super excited to have you on. Thanks, Jerry. Really excited to be here, too. Well, Jilly, let's dig right in. You seem to be having an incredible amount of fun trying to piece this all together about who we are, how we got here and why. It's like a magical puzzle with some invisible pieces, isn't it? it it's utterly fascinating. I, I mean, I, I do feel incredibly lucky to be working in a field that is also my absolute passion. So in the introduction, I mentioned the field that you work in and you've created a, a project called um, We or excuse me, Me Human. And on there you wrote, you're on a quest to better understand how we became upright walking, talking, tool using great apes that we are today through our evolution as a species. Mm. I first want to ask you about what is it we can't do? When we're trying to look at those things as as human beings looking at the other great apes that are beyond our purview, we have to piece it together in a different way. I talk about this with my students often because we are great apes and we share this incredible evolutionary history with other great apes. Yet we also have quite visible differences in the things that we can do, like, you know, our talking and our tool using, it is different from other apes. And 
trying to understand where that came from and how that emerged over time is really super difficult because ancient humans don't exist anymore. You know, we, we can't we can't dig up cognition. It doesn't fossilize in the way that other things might like we can look at how bones change over time and how postures change and bipedalism and and all these different sort of aspects of of the physicality of of us but how our our cognition changes over time how it emerged is not something that we can get from necessarily artifacts in the same sort of way of of our skeletons but we can i guess dig up things like tools that we used um we can think about how we might have used them and and derive what we think we were doing at the time, how sophisticated our behaviors were, but they're not direct evidence. And, and so this makes understanding us even trickier. With that in mind, how do we begin to fill in those gaps? You come from a human perspective versus many of the people that we've had on the podcast. They are, you know, they've studied chimps. And they're trying to connect to humans or they're studied yeah. gorillas and trying to connect to humans. But you come, you bridge from the other side. I do. Yeah. So I started my my educational training, my Ph.D. work looking at um, at brains and behaviors and how human brains work. And then coming to, to study apes a little bit later, uh, but trying to take some of those methodologies and the way that we measure brains and behaviors in humans and apply it to apes. Um, so, so maybe a slightly different perspective, but the objective is always to understand how we are similar, how we're different. And, and for me, how do our what seem like really special and unique human capabilities, like language, for example, how did it evolve over evolutionary time? Um, and how does it develop within an individual from infancy through to adulthood, for example? So I, I do come from a slightly different perspective, but I think probably my objectives are similar to many other researchers who are thinking about the evolution of, of humans and our unique capabilities. You're con you connect language and tool use as uh, together, and which is... Um, really fascinating to me to think about the way that we use tools as a precursor to language or as a, it's almost like a, a stepping stone. And I know a lot of your research has been based around looking at infants, human infants, as well as, as other great apes. Yeah, I think if we if we start from the evolutionary perspective, and I said, you know, you can't dig up language because it's not something that fossilizes, but we can dig up artifacts and think about what humans were doing. Um, we know that humans have been tool users for like 3.2 million years at least. And we can look at the kinds of tools that we made. And we're really familiar with the stone tools that we've been making for, for a very, very long period of time. Then about 100,000 years ago, there's this change in the sophistication of the kinds of tools that we dig up. And we see what's called hafted tools. So this is when we've got different materials that are bound together and we've got these tools that are specialized for specific purposes. And then we find these tools are replicated over different sites. And I think archaeologists explain this as if we're able to kind of um, have those technologies replicated, then they have to spread across communities and down generations. And there must, at this point in time, have been some sort of primitive communication system, so a proto-language system. And so we've got a little bit of evolutionary theory and evidence to suggest that 
language or proto-language was around at about 100,000 years ago. And then how do we look at the combination or the influence of tool use on language? And then that's a whole another sort of story, which I'm super interested in, because we as humans look at our language capabilities and say, oh my gosh, they're human unique. They're like no other cognitive capability that any other great ape has. But that's not actually how evolution of cognition works. We don't make new brain parts or brain functions for specific kinds of capabilities. So anything that we have today as modern humans would have had a precursor behavior. And we can look at the behaviors of, of our our living cousins, our other great ape living cousins here on, on the planet with us, our bonobos, our chimpanzees, our orangutans, our gorillas, and we can compare and contrast the kinds of behaviors that we share. And we can start to look at what kinds of behaviors could have been precursors or catalysts for language. And the idea is to not get too tied up into what looks like modern human language, because we spend a lot of time looking at vocalizations in other primates and saying, "Ooh, it's the root of language. We need to look at this because we're vocal communicators. And actually, the brain doesn't care whether or not our language is vocal or gestural. And the bit of the brain that controls sign language and deaf signers and language and, and speech and, and hearing individuals is the same. It doesn't, the brain doesn't care. What it does care about is that it has some rules and the rules are, they're kind of physical rules. You've got to put the right words in the right order to get the correct meaning out. And that's syntax in language, right? We've got individual words and they have meanings, but if you jumble them up, your sentence doesn't make any sense. So your individual words have to be put in the right order to get the right meaning out. And that's syntax. And syntax is a bit of human language that is imperative to having the complexity that we have in our communication system. And if we are now to kind of step back from that and go, well, what could have set our brains up to do something like that? Tool use is one of the evolutionary theories that, that helps the brain prepare for language. And the idea is that if you want to use or make a tool, you've got to put the actions in the correct order to get the right outcome. So for example, like if I ask you to hammer some nails into a plank of wood, you know that you first have to pick up the nail, then you have to pick up the hammer and the hammer has to hit the nail into the wood to get the right result. And if you don't do those actions in the right order, you're not going to get the nail in the wood and you're probably going to have a very, you know, a damaged finger, for example. Um, and we now know with all of the amazing imaging capabilities that we have, like functional magnetic resonance imaging and all the studies that we can do on human brains, that the bit of the brain that's involved in tool using is highly overlapping with the bit of the brain that does speech and language, and that our hands and our mouths are controlled by highly overlapping areas of our motor cortex. And so the way that we use and make tools seems to have been potentially um, a really important precursor for language in humans. 
And so that's been an area that I've I've really been digging into and trying to explore uh, further with both humans and our our ape relatives. Wow. Okay. That. Sorry, lots to unpack there. <laughs> that just spawned about no, that just spawned about twelve <laughs> questions here. Okay, let me start with the first question. So, is that connected in some way to the the fact that many of us, uh, maybe all of us, use our hands when we talk? Does yeah, sure. not being able to use your hands does that affect the way we think? I mean, because. This is maybe a really confusing question, but I don't know anybody better to ask it of. Uh, so hopefully we think before we speak. Mm-hmm. Not always, as we know from many politicians. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but hopefully we think before we speak. So we're assembling those words and those syntaxes in, in our brains, right? Mm-hmm. And then we deliver them. If we tie our hands down <laughs> and, and don't allow us to move about, does that... S- slow or alter the our ability to to start assembling those in our brains so there's some basic research that's been done in this area by an italian group of researchers um gentilucci is, is the name of the the primary researcher and he's sat people in a laboratory setting and he gets them to pick up items off of the table and they're either small items which requires like a small precision grip or they're big items and they require just like a power grip to pick up and unbeknownst to the participants the um, researchers are totally not interested in what the hands are doing they're interested in what the mouth is doing and they find that the mouth is mimicking the grasp size of the hands so there's a shadowing motion going on and so um, they're finding that, that, that the mouth is, is small when the precision grip is small and the mouth is opening wider when the power grip is wider. And then they've asked them to um, create a phoneme with the mouth. So this is the second stage of the study. So if they're picking up something large, they want them to make a phoneme that makes their mouth open wide. Uh, and I think that's the gaw they ask them to say gaw. So picking up something big and then I'm going to have a big open mouth as well. So my hand grip and my mouth size match. And then if they pick up something small, they want their mouth size to also mimic the something small. And I think it was a ba um, for the small item. And so if they had a congruency between the mouth and the hand, so you're picking up something big and you've got an open mouth phoneme, you're picking up something small and you've got a closed mouth phoneme, then this all worked really well. But if you ask them to do the opposite, so you pick up something small and you make them open their mouth wide or vice versa, they gave the wrong phoneme. So people got interrupted, their mouth was interrupted, um, which was an indicator to researchers because they wanted to see which one failed in this scenario, like was it the grip that failed or the mouth that failed? And it was the mouth that failed. So their interpretation was hands were the primary. They were the the primary communicator, the primary indicator. And they they took precedence over the mouth and the mouth was shadowing. And this is really interesting because it feeds back into some evolutionary theory that suggests as ancient humans, we started talking gesturally first. So we became bipedal about four million years ago. We stood up on two feet. Our hands became freed up. We started using them for gesturing and tool using. 
so different from our ape cousins. Um, and the more we did this, the more we became sophisticated and more sophisticated in the kinds of tools we use. So 3.2 million years ago, we were making one kind of stone napping tool that we used in all circumstances. And then more recently, we started using and making tools that were um, specified to particular contexts. And when that technology increased in sophistication, we had to teach that to other individuals in our communities. And just think if you're sitting there trying to show somebody how to make and use a tool, but also speaking with your hands at the same time, you've got a competition for the tasks of the hands. And so evolution's pressure here, this, this, um, this environmental and social pressure on humans might have been, well, one of those things needs to change channels. And so we think at that point, there might have been a pressure for communication to move channels. And the mouth is another really good articulator on the human body that could just be a food hole, but it could also do other things like communicate. And so we think that maybe there was this pressure for communication to move. It was already good for making alarm calls and things that were environmentally urgent, like screaming, and we still use it for screaming and all sorts, but those are different kinds of vocalizations than language. Um, so we think there was a shift at that point, and, and that allowed us to be good tool users, but also then communicate uh, via the mouth. So we, yeah, so that, that's one of the theories. That's it's, that's really interesting, I think, because of of what it implies, um, or it, tell me if I'm right or wrong on this, but because it becomes more complex to create a half tool, a tertiary tool, whatever, you know, as the more complex that, that becomes, the more sophisticated one would think the language would have to come to describe it to others, not build it just yourself, yeah. but then especially when the implication is in culture like we start expanding culture um and we're sharing these ideas within culture um and and especially if if culture then expands beyond our tribe or a small group but it starts becoming a village um because we can share those we can verbally share those like i i can i'm sitting here in a in a city of well you're sitting there halfway on the other side of the world. You're in the UK. I'm in, in the United States. If we're speaking, I can describe how to build something. Then they can carry that description to another person. And then pretty soon, the description on how to build the the little handle with a hammer stone at the top and strap it together to make a hammer, that's on the other side of the, of the village or the valley or a valley, you know, two valleys away. To people you've never met, but now you're connected by that. that I guess that's the cultural piece I was going yeah. for. You're, there's now a sharing, a cultural sharing. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, exactly. But but you need both those those modalities going at the same time, don't you? For that that initial communication, you need to be able to show the actions of how these things work together, whilst communicating verbally with them as well. I mean, maybe just the actions initially would would work to show the demonstrations. But, you know, I, I think there was enough pressure there for the hands to be object manipulators and, and, and there need to be another channel for 
for vocal communication um, to to impart information to the people that you're teaching. This seems to be a, an, a fascinating birth point of who we are as I mean, because we're now on living on a planet where we share information at, in a fraction of a second. Right. Mm. We, we share it all over the planet, whether it's through something like an Instagram or like we're now talking, uh, you know, in video screens that are sh shared on halfway around the world with one another. That ability to share with others who we have we've never met. I teach you how to build a hammer. And then on the other side of the world, you start making things with the hammer and then you start selling those things or trading those things to people. And then this thing comes back to me and it. It's a little bread box. And I go, where did this bread box? Well, there's this guy <laughs> way over there. And it's like all of a sudden culture and the, and the language gets yeah. more complex. So, okay, here's a question. The, mm. the question is, mm -hmm. can we see any of that in infants, like children who don't have that? Because children have an urge to speak, but they can't speak. Like they're not born being able mm -hmm. to say a bunch of words, right? Yeah. So so this is this other aspect that I think delineates us slightly from other gray apes is that it, and this is this is a, a symptom of bipedalism. So when we became bipedal, the way that our bodies are situated, our skeletons are situated, changed aspects of about, say, for example, the way the head sits on the spine, but also it narrowed the hips and it narrowed the hips with a resulting effect of it being more difficult to birth babies. And so if you were to like look at the size of, of a newborn baby's head from a chimpanzee or gorilla or orangutan or bonobo um, and the size of that mother's cervix, it's an easy pass. Right. The baby's head can slip through that cervix. No problem at all. Like birthing infants is not so difficult for for the quadrupedal other great apes. But for us humans, it became actually really tricky because the narrowing of the hips really decreased the size of of a baby's head that can get through that that birth canal. And so evolution's answer to this was to birth our infants earlier. And this is why human infants are really underdeveloped in comparison to other great apes. Their motor and sensory processing is completely subpar to other great apes. I mean, you've seen, Jerry, you've seen newborn babies who not long after birth, they, they, they can cling to mummy, right? They, they grasp really well, they can cling on, um, and their, their motor and sensory development is way ahead of a human infant who is absolutely vulnerable and totally rubbish at having any usable motor sensory behavior. Um, but one of the side effects of having this early birth and this really underdeveloped motor sensory system is that you've got an incredibly plastic brain. And this increased juvenile period as well, which is called this neoteny period, which we think was absolutely critical to the social transmission of information. So all of this cultural stuff that we want to share was really really easy and, and absorbed like a sponge by infants whose brains are really plastic um, 
during that period of time. And this really long juvenile period that humans have make it much easier for us to learn information across this this period of time when our brains are still developing. So we think actually, even though babies are born, human babies are born really vulnerable, it has this side effect of allowing us to be much more flexible with our learning, if that makes sense. How plastic? Like if, if, if you take if you if you take a, a baby chimp and you take a baby human and, and you know, uh, the sort of common mm-hmm. uh, descriptor is that roughly around two years old, they catch up with one another. Mm-hmm. Chimps and, and baby humans and baby chimps, they kind of roughly are in the two year range. They they start to equalize equal out and then humans continue to accelerate in, in terms of learning and things at at a greater rate than, than chimps do. Mm-hmm. If I was to look at a, a, chimp, a baby chimp brain at birth and I was to look at a, a baby human brain at birth, how would I see that plasticity? Is there a way to look at it? Oh gosh, it's a really interesting question. <laughs> uh, is there a way to look at it? Um... Well, I'm going to give Jilly a couple of minutes to ponder plasticity in the meantime, I'll check in with our assistant producer, Demelza Pond. Hi, Demelza. Hi, everyone. Hope you're all doing great out there. I've got some comments from some of you to read out today. So we recently asked on social media, what have you learned about great apes from this podcast? Marie Claire Crossley wrote in with a fantastic answer. She said that they love their families, they're intelligent, gentle and less provoked, they understand their habitats and live appropriately. I am in awe of great apes and I certainly don't feel superior. I'm so pleased to hear that people are learning more about great apes and the issues surrounding them through this podcast because that's exactly what we set out to do, isn't it, Jerry? It is, Demelza. It's exactly what our goal was and is. It's like this conversation with Jilly. What a fascinating way to connect all apes like us. Well, it looks like Jilly could use a minute more. What else have you got there, Demelza? Jenny Brown said she thoroughly enjoyed the episode with Rachel Hogan, who is director of Ape Action Africa. I love that episode as well, Jenny. Yeah, please go check it out, listeners, if you haven't done so. It's earlier in this season. Zoe Stoddard said, I adore your podcast and I can't wait for more episodes. Thank you so much for all the kind and supportive comments and please keep writing in to us. It makes us really happy. If you want to, go to our website, click contact us or you can get us on almost all of the social media platforms. Just send us a message or a comment on there. You might want to leave a short review, an idea for a future episode or maybe you've got a story about primates you want to share or just come and say hello. I love chatting with our listeners and we love to hear from you. Don't forget, we are a non-profit. We literally can't make this podcast without the generous support of our donors. So if you enjoy it and you'd like to see it continue long into the future, as we do, then please consider supporting us. You can become a Patreon member for a small monthly fee. You'll get a membership certificate and you'll get access to some future bonus materials that we are working on. Or you can make a one-off donation. Head over to talkingapes.org for more information. As always, thank you so much to our existing troop of supporters. You are amazing. Don't forget to follow us on social media. We're on all the platforms. 
please also subscribe if you enjoy the podcast wherever you're listening be that spotify apple amazon wherever you get your podcast click that subscribe button it helps you to know when we release a new episode and it helps us to grow and get more visibility we really appreciate it thanks everyone Thanks, Demelza. And I think we've given Julie long enough to ponder that plasticity question. So what have you come up with? Well, you brought up the point of humans and other apes having this kind of point where they catch up with each other um, at at about two years old. And and, and that's something that I've, I've found really interesting. So traditionally, the way research has gone is to split our abilities into two areas, our physical cognition and our social cognition. So our physical cognition being like, oh, can we work out when there's a small amount of items or lots of items? Can we work out where things are in space? Um, And and these kinds of judgments on, on the environment around us. And then there's the social cognition, which is like, well, am I going to develop language and how well can I communicate with the individuals around me? Um, and with the physical cognition, we do ca- like other our other great ape relatives and, and humans are on par. And in fact, apes will exceed us in many physical cognitive areas, like including things like um, spatial cognition and Part of the reason is because we have to remember that each of us in our own evolutionary lineages, even though we share 23 million years of evolution, we also departed in our own trajectories about five, six million years ago. And we, as a species, we all evolved to our ecological niches. So, for example, chimpanzees, they evolved to live in the wild and remember where for fruiting trees are at different times of the year um, over a large expanse of space. And therefore, this has been shown in laboratory settings. I think this is in Kyoto University, where if you put a chimpanzee in a laboratory setting and you train them in front of a screen to press the numbers one to nine in order, they can learn this very well. And they learn what the order of the numbers are, and they can press them in the sequence of one to nine. And then if you show them the numbers one to nine on the screen, and then you immediately mask them after less than a second with a, a just a square, like a white square over all the numbers, the chimpanzee can remember where each number was and still press those white squares in sequence from one to nine, whereas a human cannot. We will fail at this time and time again. And so the theory is that, well, chimps need to understand spatial, they they need to understand this spatial cognition. They need to know where fruiting trees are. Their cognitive ability to do this physical cognition task is better than ours. So we've, we, but 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 we never look at it from that perspective. We're always looking at humans as superior to other apes. So we tend to look at the social cognition side and say, oh, well, apes are communicating in a different way from their 
uh, from with their social partners than humans are. Humans understand gesture, for example, they understand pointing and they understand sharing attention with other individuals and sharing attention over objects. Apes don't do that in the same way. Therefore, humans are superior. And this has been the way that much of the comparative research has gone traditionally, uh, which somewhat frustrating time to time. Um, but I think we need to be clear about the fact that humans and other great apes develop our skill sets to be successful within our individual ecological niches. And that humans do some things differently than apes. And we need to understand why that is. But we still should look at our similarities to understand where the original cognitive components came from. Sorry, long way around to maybe not answer your question. No, 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 because <laughs> it, it, um, it actually triggered some thoughts. I, I was working with a researcher in Cameroon and she was looking at physical cognition. I remember her describing her work as she said, I, I'm sort of looking at the the 3D, 3D world. And one of the things that she described, and because chimps go up in the trees, they're arboreal, which is interesting because we typically don't, when we see them in institutions like zoos or research settings, we see them as terrestrial creatures. And that's the last thing they are. They're arboreal creatures. They spend so much time up there. They walk out on a branch. If it's raining, they have to understand it's slippery. They have to translate all this other information, the tensile strength of the branch. Will it support my weight? Will I need to get to the fruit at the end of the branch, which requires I go out on something that may or may not support me? There, I could encounter a snake while I'm out there. You know, there's like all this other information uh, that they're having to use in addition to your basic 3D-ness that we walk around the planet with. Working with her and filming her, it just left me with this. I was like, how do we film that? And how how does that shift our brains? Or did our brains not develop? Well, no, no, but you bring up a really fascinating point. I mean, there, 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 I'm trying to remember what species this was now, but there, there was this study. I, I don't know if it was a study or if it was just a release program, but there was a group of monkeys that were released into the wild and they were literally falling out of the trees because their experience of the world had been in captivity and their enrichment environment had been hard and solid structures that didn't have the same sort of pliability and give that trees did. So even though they had been taught to forage and they thought they were good candidates for release, when they went into the wild, they had not experienced what it was like to actually be arboreal. Like they didn't know what the physics of the trees were like. And even though their brains had the capability to learn it, you have to trigger those experiences in order to actually manifest those, you know, those data points to, to understand what is slippery, what is, what, what is um, pliability, what, you know, how much is this branch going to move when I try to walk out on it? Will it support my weight? All those things the the primate brain has the capability to understand, but it still needs to learn it over time by triggering those mechanisms with experiences. 
exactly like a human baby, is predisposed to learn language. The actual neural architecture is there for a baby to learn language. But if you don't expose them to the stimulus, they're not going to learn language. Does that, do you know what I mean? Yeah. It, it, and, and do we have... That that was it's interesting. You you said that because I was actually my next question was going to be. I was watching a film uh, that you you had done, and it showed children manipulating a, a similar uh, a box. Um, and we can put a picture up in a in the blog that will accompany this podcast, so people can see it. Um, they're manipulating objects through a, a box and, and then you have, I think, chimpanzees doing the same thing and they have to manipulate a food item or something through the box. And there's different levels of uh, technicalness to it. This, a simple box just kind of come down a little ladder of holes and it pops out <laughs> yep. versus putting gears and cogs in there and it makes it more difficult and, you know, a bit more of a puzzle. And and looking at how we, we solve that and how that again, as we're talking about, it develops language and we connect that to developing some language skills. I'm wondering about what happens to a child that is injured or born without arms and hands. Yeah. That's like <laughs> what, how does, does that affect their, their language development or what happens to a child that isn't born around people who speak to it? Mm. And does I think that's the bigger problem. Do they begin to only work with their hands? Those are like two different, slightly different questions, but connected. I mean, do we know anything about that? So I think I think we've already talked a little bit about the, the fact that the brain doesn't care what what modality language is is uh, produced in. Um, what it's interested in is the sequence of the actions so that is what seems to give it meaning is is what order we put the actions in so we, we all will have come across people who have um, different sorts of, of sensory um, disabilities maybe they're they're blind or they're deaf um, and they can still they can still perceive language so so language will happily change channels if you can't hear um, uh, you can you can still learn how to how to um, sign with your hands. Um, it, it's not problematic. Uh, it, it is about the action sequences. So so I think that's not so much a problem. But if you're not exposed to language and and triggering the brain mechanism that deals with this motor action sequencing, um, I think you you still do get um, communication between humans, and and I think that that the seminal studies were with Nicaraguan children who were deaf children born to hearing parents who didn't have their, you know, they didn't they weren't stimulated with language because the parents didn't know sign language, and so there was this community of kids who were growing up not having exposure to language and you do kind of get pigeon language emerging um but with a different kind of complexity to uh language you would get if you grow up within a community of language users so being stimulated by the surrounding uh people in your community is is hugely necessary um but i think that brain mechanism for processing 
motor action sequences that gives meaning out of whether or not it's it's verbal speech or actions made with the hands and whether or not those actions with the hands are manipulating objects or giving you gestures that's the the bit of the brain that is is going to be involved in that and then that's exactly what the 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 puzzle boxes that you were alluding to were trying to test that was asking the question of we've got this theory that tool use might have been a, a, a useful precursor or an obvious precursor to, to language. Even though language and tool use don't look very similar on the surface, if we break them down into actually what underpins them, we think that the same bit of brain um, is, is um, that, that, that's processing that information is overlapping in those two different functions. And so the puzzle boxes were a way to say, can we make a physical syntax in the form of a puzzle box so that the actions that are required to move a nut through a puzzle, the individual has to learn that there are certain physical rules that apply to that puzzle and moving it through cogs and different little lips and bits and flat mazes that if you don't learn what the rules are, the physical rules and how those cogs and mazes bits fit together, you'll lose it in a trap. Then that could give us some indication as to whether or not a physical syntax could have been a precursor to language. And we want to know whether or not our great ape cousins could solve those kinds of syntax problems. And, and that that was the whole kind of underlying premise of, of the puzzle box study. So I have an ape, I have a non-human ape question and a human ape question regarding that. So let's start with the human ape question. You have two children, maybe one's slightly older, one's slightly younger. They're with those puzzle box things. The older child is trying to explain to the younger child how to do it, how to manipulate this thing and having to create language to explain it like because their brain is being pressed to explain something that they have never had to explain before where this where this question is coming from is going back to these half tools and i'm thinking about okay here you have a tool that has two a wooden handle and a stone top and then at some point you have to strap it together. So there's a third element. And then at some point you try to do something else with it. And then you try to do something else with it. And there, it becomes more and more complicated. I know we don't have the ability to step back a hundred thousand years and look, put sensors on the brain and see what was happening to the brain as it went through each of those steps that were more and more complicated. But we kind of can do that now. We, yeah. you know, if, if somebody allows us to, to put the probes on a child's head, their parent does. We can, we, are we seeing the brain act, actively do something as it manipulates through yeah. each of those steps with that child trying to come up with new ways to describe to the younger child how to do this? I, I mean, I think, I think that's one way to think about it. The way that we were thinking about it was, okay, look, you've got these children and we can take them across different stages of language learning. So we started at just sub two years old and we were looking through the age of five. So we're thinking, okay, our little two year olds, they're gonna be 
single word users, maybe two word users. And then our five-year-old should be like pretty sophisticated sentence users. And so my boxes that we created represented different stages of language learning. We had little boxes that were like um, what I would make equivalent to like nouns. So they are flat mazes. They're, you know, mm, I don't know, 12 inches by 12 inches, let's say, of a flat maze. You pop a, a nut in the top. And for kids, these were fake nuts because of nut allergies. Um, and then there's holes in the front of it and they have to put their finger in and push this nut along the flat maze to a bigger opening at the bottom where they can take this nut out. Or they can use a stick and we leave sticks all over the floor and some of the kids work it out that they can use a stick and some don't. All of the apes want to use a stick and they go and find them themselves in their own enclosures, which is really interesting. But that's a, that's a side point. Anyway, these... No, we're coming back to flat, that. We're coming we'll, back we'll to come that. Back. But these flat mazes, <laughs> these flat mazes for me are like nouns. They're concrete. You can always have your finger on the nut. You always know where the nut is and you can push the nut all the way along to the exit and take it out. Then you've got small boxes again, very similar in size that just have a cog at the top and the nut goes in the top. It slots into one of the cog um, uh, divots. You have a access to the bottom of the cog where you can push it around. It makes the nut fall out to the bottom and then you push it along the bottom and take it out the exit point. For me, that's like a verb. Okay, It's an action. You can move that nut around um, and get it out the bottom. And then you've got another small box, a third of the small boxes, which is like, uh, for me, this is like an adjective. It's a double cog. So you've got two cogs that fit together. You put the nut into the top cog, but you don't have access to the top cog. You've only got finger access to the bottom cog. And you can push that bottom cog, which turns that top cog. And this is kind of like one word modifying another word. So for me, these are like adjectives. You take an adjective and you can modify a noun. Great. So I understand the relationship between these physical things and I can make that nut still fall out the bottom and I can take it out the exit point. All right. So those are the those are like our elements of our our very simple language here. And then we've got big boxes and these are our sentence boxes and our sentence boxes mix these different elements of our nouns, our verbs and our adjectives into a big box. And the children have to remember how these things all work and then how they fit together um, to get the nut out the very bottom of the sentence box. And if they, for example, turn that double cog in the wrong way and they don't understand how this works, they will lose the nut in a trap. So they don't necessarily get the nut out at all. And so for us to validate that, that these boxes could be simulating what we think a physical syntax looks like, we had to be able to say that the children who are single word users, our very young ones, could probably solve the very simplistic boxes. And the kids who are sentence users, our older ones, should probably be able to solve the big boxes, the sentence boxes. And this is exactly what we're finding. So even though we don't have the papers out yet and all the data analyzed and everything finished, the patterns look like this looks like it does represent a syntax structure. The kids' learning levels and their ability to solve these boxes seems to mirror their language learning capabilities. 
Moreover, if you give these boxes to any species of great apes, there are some individuals within every species who can solve the most complex of these boxes. And for me, that suggests syntax is absolutely not unique to humans. It is something that we have inherited over evolutionary time. We've co-opted it and extended upon it for language capabilities. And this was a, you know, our effort to put some real data behind an evolutionary theory uh, with a comparative study. So it, it is novel in, in that respect. Um, and I'm excited about it for those reasons. Uh, but for me, it emphasizes the fact that we are not very unique. None of the capabilities that humans have are entirely unique to us. They have an evolutionary history. And if we want to understand who we are as upright, walking, talking, tool-using great apes, we have to understand what it is that we share with our great ape relatives and where these capabilities might have come from versus looking at the kind of differences and and that two percent of our dna that isn't the same as other great apes and focusing on that rather than focusing on that we should be looking at the other 98 percent and going how did what what did we bootstrap from what did we extend upon what what's you know what, what have we used because we don't create these new bits of cognition out of nowhere we just cobble on top evolution's super messy and, and we, we just keep building on what's already there. So um, I think, yeah, that that's my inspiration for research. <laughs> One of the questions that raises in my mind is you think, you know, what did we bootstrap or cobble on to? And, and so I want to say that then what what of those evolutionary precursors elements did the chimp cobble on to and bootstrap on to become the chimp? Yeah. Or the bonobo or the orangutan or, um, you know, because there's this tendency to think, oh, you know, we split off from them five million years ago and they're mm -hmm. still there. No, that that was that was this rudimentary set of elements that we all shared and then yeah. we've all taken them in our own directions. And so to look at those directions that they've taken them before I forget, it, I do want to ask you about the big box. Uh, you described sort of three stages of the box, the precog, the cog. And then the multiplex mm. box with all of its different bits and pieces. I'm assuming a child plays with the first one or an ape plays with the first one and then plays with the second one and then moves to the third. Is there a point where if I shoved the big box in front of a person, at what age do they understand how to figure it out versus be without having that those precursor steps? That is there like if you shove the big box in front of a five year old without any of the, the precursors, do they just f get frustrated and hit the box and walk <laughs> away? Or is there an age where we actually said, no, I can figure this out. If you shove it in front of you or me, I would assume eventually we figure out how this thing's supposed to work. Yeah, right? yep, definitely. In the same way that we've got very our language skills are very are much more complex. Our sentence structures are much more complex. They, they have a lot more nuance to them. So is it a, is an eight-year-old that would typically then, I mean, do you see where I'm going with the question? It's like, is there a point where the, our language 
and our reasoning to figure this out, they, they are aligned mm-hmm. or one supports the other in our thinking. So we look at that box and we go, okay, I don't know how this box works, but I will figure mm-hmm. it out. Versus looking at it and going, I don't know how it works. I have no reference points to, to tell me how to work it, to figure it out. God, that's a really, that's a really interesting question. So I have seen the gorillas and the chimpanzees get frustrated with a box that they can't solve. And there are individuals who will, will not have solved the box over our testing period. And they show their frustrations in a very similar way to humans where they're like, I'm going to hit this box and they, they give it a big fist or, or they kick it. And, and we've, we've had to repair many boxes due to gorillas getting frustrated with them and kicking them. Um, but at what point mm, I've also shared these boxes at festivals. So I, I took the the sentence, the big boxes to Glastonbury last year and, and I put them up for humans <laughs> to come in and say, can you beat the best times of our gorillas, chimpanzees and orangutans? Um, and hysterically, people coming and seeing them for the first time will not look ahead and they will inevitably lose the nut in a trap and then be very frustrated with themselves for not paying attention and looking ahead. So they can solve them, but the impetus is to um, go for fast and furious versus planning and precision. Um, And in fact, I saw great differences anecdotally between men and women, where men would face off as a race against their female partners. um, And the women would take their time and look ahead and plan, whereas the men would go with brute force, fast and furious, they would lose their nut in the trap. And I'd say, ladies, take as long as you like, because you cannot lose now as long as you are able to solve the problem at hand. Um, So it's do we see that same thing in apes, like in, in chimps, for example? Do we see female chimps are have a greater pr- proclivity to solving it you like know, that versus male chimps? And again, anecdotally, yes, it's the females who solve these problems. Um, I don't know if that has any association with the fact that that girls learn language earlier than boys and seem to be more verbal. Um better at their language skills. Maybe it's social communication. Maybe this is just societal biases. It's really hard to know. But indeed, in our gorilla groups and our chimpanzees, uh, chimpanzee groups, well, and our orangutans, to be fair, um, it was all the females who were able to solve the the most difficult problems. Uh, I'm not sure what that says and whether or not there's enough data points to make any interpretations. Um, but it, but it was, it, it was um, an interesting, yeah, it was an interesting, it was interesting to see the different uh, individuals to be fair with, with the gorilla groups, you do have the silverback and mostly adult females. Um, so there are mostly females working on the boxes anyway. Um, So it's a bit biased in that respect. So whether or not we can say anything truly about sex differences with the boxes is is probably unfair. We'll just leave it at that. (laughs) For you listening, you can interpret things the way you want to interpret on that one until the data shows up. As you were saying that and, and talking about it falling into a trap and not looking forward, that it raised in my mind the word anticipatory. You know, when I was, um, 
filming at, at Gombe many years ago. And one of the things I wanted to film was the fishing, uh, the where the chimpanzees will mm. find sticks, use them to fish termites out. I'm sure you're aware there's the work in the Ivory Coast and places like that, that Christoph Bosch did, did where nut cracking, and now we've seen nut cracking in and populations across uh, the Congo Basin in West Africa and other species of great apes using tools. One of the things that was fascinating about that to, to me was this idea of anticipatory tool use. I remember speaking to a, a researcher and I can't think of their name right at the moment, but they said, if if this milestone that Jane discovered with tool use and that, you know, that Lewis Leakey said, we may have to change the, either the definition of tool or the definition mm -hmm. of, hum, you know, mankind. It was a female researcher. And she said, I think the next step is anticipatory tool use. And that is, they were looking at chimps that would find stones that fit their hand. They go to a, a place yep. where stream bed or something, find stones, then carry them to where the nuts yep. were. And then break open nuts. They carefully guarded the nut, the, the stone, so another chimp wouldn't take it. But then they also would carry it for, for sometimes two or three days. Um, they'd often put it in, quote, their pocket, which on a chimp is you put it kind of in the crevice of your leg against your mm -hmm. abdomen. And you can, you can carry objects around a bit like that. And, and that idea that this works to do this thing I may need it in the future yeah. to do that thing or something similar to that. You know, I don't, I make a hammer, I make that half tool you were talking about, and I don't just throw it away because I invested time and energy mm. to do a task and now I may need to do it. And, and so when you were describing the big box, that word anticipatory showed up in my brain because you were talking about the guys were just speed. They weren't anticipating what the outcome was. Yeah. Really. Yeah. And the humans, even the kids, they didn't pick up a tool. You know, they didn't anticipate the tool using aspect of it, which I thought was interesting. So so go back to that, because you said the chimps did. Yeah. Yeah. What, what was going on, do you think, there? Course, it, it was so interesting. So um, the gorillas and the chimps and the orangutans showed anticipatory tool use. They would come with a tool in hand. You know, they would come ready. They, they knew they wanted to use a tool. Um, and, and I've seen this in, in my observations, even during my postdoc days at Portland Wild Animal Park, where they have um, this uh, metal repository where they would put honey or peanut butter in it. Um, and one ape was shown at one point in time that, that this metal repository had a food substance in it. Um, and that you could stick a stick in it. And then, you know, months later, you find that actually all the apes know how to use this and they go hunting for a tool. And not only do they find a tool and put it in and dig out the peanut butter or the honey and lick it off, but that they learn how to modify the tool and they make a brush at the end of it so that they can scoop out more of the substance. And we found that that the apes were really, really good at this. And in fact, um, they would bring a tool to the apparatus uh, with them. So it was, you know, we, we find it very difficult to afford cognitive capabilities to other animals as humans. We've got this entrenched perception that we are the only ones that have these sophisticated kind of planning mechanisms and these sophisticated tool using capabilities. And, 
And um, absolutely, you you can see the evidence for the fact that they would plan. They would come with a plan. Not only did they come with a tool, but we had these... Um, I, mean, I know I told you about the different boxes that we used, but when we had the sentence boxes, these bigger ones, there was always an element at the bottom that they hadn't encountered before that also had a rule and, and that they could lose the nut if they didn't work it out. Um, and one of these was a rocker that basically the nut would fall into a divot in the middle of the rocker. And this was the last phase. And if they pushed the bit of the rocker at the bottom it was counterintuitive so if you push it one direction the rocker goes down like that you know to the to the if you if you push it one way the rocker goes the opposite way effectively um and um these were fastened and, and they worked by a set of of rubber bands basically that were in place and many of our apes and anybody who's worked with apes particularly orangutans know that they'll dismantle everything before you even get started um but the gorillas and the orangutans ma managed to dismantle the elastic bands that made the rocker work and so you could you could position the rocker in the correct position to avoid the nut going in the trap you could set it before you started working on the box. And we found that the that there were several gorillas who would, and chimps actually, who would approach the box with the tool. So they're already planning. Not only did they do that, they would survey the whole box first, set the rocker into the correct position, which is the last stage of solving the maze, and then they would start moving the nut from the top down to the bottom, knowing that by the time it got to the bottom, they would get the correct result. So for me, there is absolutely no doubt that we need to afford to these individuals the planning capabilities that that we typically only afford to humans. And I think it's ridiculous that just because they can't self-report what they're doing with language to tell us what they're thinking, that we wouldn't afford these capabilities to them. And I absolutely think that they they have many of, of the cognitive capabilities that we think are human unique. They they have them in spades. And, and um, I, I uh, look forward to showing them off. Speaking of planning, we we originally planned and we told you this was going to be about an hour ish and we've actually run over that. I have one last question I'm going to ask you now, but I'm going to before we even get to that, I'm going to say I'd love to invite you back and let's continue the conversation in another podcast at some point. Oh, it would be my pleasure. Oh, great. Thank you. Let's let's do it. Uh, this has been really, really fun. Um, and I have like a million questions I've scrolled <laughs> down on paper that we didn't even get to. So part of what you were just speaking about made me think, should science be less disciplined? Yes. <laughs> Short answer. I, I just feel like that that's the question. Should it be less disciplined? Are we are we just are we cheating ourselves out of being better observers and understanders? Yeah, it's, it's a fantastic question. I come from a super rigorous science background, neuro, neuroscientifically based. We need we need rigorous scientific measures, absolutely. But we also get very entrenched in our way of thinking and our perspectives, which means the way we develop and design studies tend to be entrenched in our human centric view of the way cognition works. And so I think we need more artistic creativity 
We need to collaborate outside of our fields. We also need to be collaborating with individuals who are working on the ground with with apes. So our keepers, our conservationists, our release programs, because we shouldn't just be coming in as researchers with a predefined notion of what it is we want to study and the information we want to take away, but we should be working with individuals who have a richer understanding of the apes that we want to study. And there are many dimensions to cognition, and it's not just about a single data point about whether or not you can solve a puzzle, but it also has to do with what was the rearing history of this individual? Who are their social relationships with? What age are they? What stage um, you know, of, of development are they in? And, and what is their hierarchy of, of the group that they're in? So we, we need to bring together a more holistic understanding of an individual in order to assess cognition. Um, and you know, with, with my future research also to better understand um, psychological well-being of, of apes and, and how we can help them in future conservation efforts to get more of them out into the wild. Uh, but yes, a short answer to, a long answer to, to your question is, yes, more interdisciplinary um, work. Uh, let's invite many other people in to collaborate who, who can broaden our perspectives and enrich our studies with additional information. Jilly, this has been, this has been so much fun. I, this is, I have to say this is a, and this is the first time I've ever said this. It's just, I want to thank you. This has been talking apes at its core. It's two apes talking (laughs) about apes talking and tool use and everything else. This has just been a blast. I I really, it's so fascinating. I'd love to be able to film everything that we've been talking about and share it with people visually that way as well. So maybe we can collaborate in the future on something like that. But thank you for taking this time to be on Talking Apes. any fleeting thought before we let you go? Oh, um, I, I'm just excited for what the future holds. I, I, I think we've got um, so many passionate people who are working towards making the world a better place and, and giving apes hope for a wild future. And I, I really want to be part of that movement. So, um, yeah, watch this space. I want to thank Jilly for this amazing past hour. You'll find links to Jilly's Me Human project, including videos and some of the tool tests that we chatted about, all on our website at talkingapes.org. You've been listening to Talking Apes, the podcast that gets to the heart of what's happening with and to apes like us. Our conversations are with folks from across this planet of apes, writers, researchers, conservationists, and scientists like Jilly Forrester all getting us closer to understanding who we are and why. I would like to thank our Talking Apes team, assistant producer Demel Zaban and lead researcher Megan Levandusky for all the behind the scenes work they do in making this podcast possible. And I'd like to thank you, the donors and Patreon members who make Talking Apes successful through your generous support and your sharing of this podcast. If you appreciate what you hear on Talking Apes, consider supporting us. Please visit our website at talkingapes.org to do so. And finally, I would like to thank all of those on the front line of Great Ape Survival. We hope through the Talking Apes podcast, we're able to shine a light on some of the incredible selfless work you do every single day to ensure Great Apes, primates, and their forest homes survive and thrive deep into the future. I'm Jerry Ellis. Thanks for listening and sharing the Talking Apes podcast.